Hello! That was a high-pitched hello from me to you. Welcome back to the Long Distance Love Bombs podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg, and today's guest is Vitaly Buford, an author and a coach, someone who speaks very openly and honestly and bravely about her addiction to Adderall, her stint in rehab, and the process of writing her memoir, memoir, why can't I say the word memoir? She wrote a memoir, anyway, wrote a memoir all about her life and her struggles and her stories and how she overcame that to become the brave, badass human that she is now. We dive into perfectionism, what causes it, what you can do about it. And we also touch on things like self-love, acceptance, and awareness. It's a good episode. About halfway in, I feel like Vitaly eats the uh, the magic mushroom like Super Mario Brothers and then becomes this giant version of herself and starts speaking very enthusiastically and gives me a great pep talk. So look forward to that fire. And without further ado, Vitaly Buford. Okay, hang on, let me do my hair. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Should I do some jazz hands or something for your photo? Can't do that totally. So, what do you want to talk about? Is there anything that feels really exciting at the moment? Or, I mean, obviously, you wrote a book that's coming out, so we should jam on that. I think so. For me, I call myself the imperfectionist. And for me, I believe that perfectionism is the most pervasive thing holding people back. But right now, like in our current state of the world, it's like a perfectionist nightmare. Like we are living in a perfection, like trigger playground right now. (laughs) I I mean, truly, right? Like for a perfectionist, uncertainty is the antithesis. Mm. you know people pleasing is a perfectionist dream and when we're social distancing you can't people please you know you have to actually create boundaries well you don't have to but there's an opportunity and this uncertainty and lack of control and no timeline no task list you know is no go 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 actually resting is the opposite of perfectionist thinking mm-hmm. so it's quite and it's an interesting social experiment yeah and i suppose for context if if you're listening we're recording on march 18th where the coronavirus is happening more and more widespread i suspect this is going to come out in about two weeks so who knows what the world is going to be like in two weeks right but that's just a bit of context for the uh what did you call it a trigger playground yeah <laughs> I like that. I've never heard that expression. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> You're okay, so we could jam on um, perfectionism is a good topic that I haven't discussed yet on the podcast. So I'm happy to dive into that if you'd like. Let's do it. Um, and then how that relates to life and success and all that stuff. Yeah. But then I also want to, because you have a pretty radical personal story that's detailed in your memoir about drug addiction and eating disorder. And I, I haven't read the book yet, to be fair, but I look um, forward to it. Yeah. I'm sure there's some stuff in those 
past experiences that's ample fodder for a podcast, let's say? Yes. Yes, for sure. It's a very, um, it's a brutally honest memoir. So everyone after reading it will know me very well. <laughs> what's, uh, what's it called? It's called Addicted to Perfect. Addicted to Perfect. Okay, so that's relevant to what you just described. Yeah. When you were writing it, were you, how did you deal with the fears of what friends and family would think or say or respond? Oh, for me, um, the things that I, I kept in front of me, the first principle for writing for me was I wrote for myself. A lot of book coaches, writers would say, you know, create your, um, you know, create your person or your ideal reader. But for me, I was writing the book for me. So that kept me going. I wasn't trying to impress anyone. I was writing the story for me. And then the second piece was I had to throw my perfection out the window. And so I just wrote stream of consciousness without editing. Now, obviously the editing was at the end of the initial draft, but for the first draft, I just wrote without editing. And yeah, for me, it's super scary because there are a lot of harmful stories about my mother, my sister, but I made sure that the stories I included were not intended to harm. They were relevant to me and the story that I was telling the reader. Mm. And they're factual, I imagine. Right. And that's one of the things about my book is I'm really encouraging people to own their stories. Mm. We as humans minimize our life experiences. You know, like we're like, well, I was emotionally abused. I wasn't physically abused. Well, we all have our own stories everything's relative. And so to own your story and put it on paper makes it real. And so, yeah, for me, it was the first time I lived, I grew up in a household where everything was a secret, you know, don't tell anything. And so to actually put it on paper and own it was a really big deal. A huge deal. Right. I mean, it's basically the opposite of how you were raised. If you're raised right. in a household in which everything was a secret, we don't talk about anything. And then you go out and write a fully transparent memoir in a book and put it out into the world. Right. That's a courageous step. Yeah. But if I can do it truly, like I want to be the example that it's possible for anyone mm. and there's so much healing. Now there's an ass load of triggering. Like I was triggered the entire writing process, but so, so much healing came from it. Mm. Like, do you want to dive into that? Like what's, I, I there's so many ways we can start this. Like, yeah. Um, I'm just, maybe just, I'll just go make some popcorn and listen to you talk for 20 minutes about your life and what you've learned. <laughs> so I wrote the story chronologically, but I wrote chapters as I felt called to, um, the book is chronological, but for me, I wrote chapters, like the chapters that I wrote last were the ones that were hardest for me to write. Mm. Uh, but for me, like my story is, is that I grew up in a home with two workaholics and an alcoholic, and there was just a lot of emotional neglect. And, and so for me, from that, I learned and thought that I needed to be perfect to be loved. And for me, that meant really thin and very high achieving because that's how I got praise. Mm. And so then when I went to college and I was on diet after diet after diet, and it consumed my thoughts. And then my junior year of college, I discovered Adderall. My boyfriend at the time had an actual prescription. And he said, why don't you try this? And I tried it and it was legitimately the perfect drug for me. 
I lost weight with, without even trying. I got, and I was already a really good student, but I was able to study with ease until two or 3 a.m. Mm. and getting great A's. And I was hooked. And then for 10 years, I was addicted to Adderall. It also shut off the, the diet talk. So I didn't have to think about that. That wasn't crowding my, my brain space anymore. And so I was extremely thin, extremely high achieving in my corporate career. And my Adderall tolerance grew and grew and grew over 10 years from taking 10 milligrams to 360 milligrams a day. That sounds like a significant increase in dosage. Yes, over 10 years. And Wow. It, so that's 36 times what you started with? Yeah. And so just to clarify, Adderall is for ADD. Is that right? Right. So it's, a, it's, a, it's basically controlled meth. It's a prescription stimulant. Okay. And so you gradually just took more and more. Was that to maintain the feelings that you were, that you were getting? Yeah, it was to maintain the feelings and to work later because, and then you just, you grow a tolerance to it, you know, like what worked wasn't working anymore. So it required more and all of mine were prescriptions. So it was a very expensive habit, but then also it required me to go doctor shopping, which is illegal. So I was seeing, four five, I was seeing four to five doctors at a time. I was lying to them manipulating them. Like I was at the brink of going, like potentially going to jail. Like if I'd continued at the end of my 10 year Adderall career. Career. And so, so when you say doctor shopping that I'm guessing that that means you go to one doctor for a while, but then that guy or, or girl kind of catches on and is like, Oh no, Vitaly, you're hooked on, on this drug. I'm not going to give you anymore. You don't actually need it. Right. And so back in the day, you know, there's state systems that monitor these drugs because it was a, a certain class drug that it has to be entered into the statewide system, but doctors weren't checking. They weren't being required to check. So it was just like wide ass open for me. I could go to a doctor, I list off my symptoms, and all I had to have was a prior Adderall bottle. As right. And so what were the symptoms? What would you tell them? So if you Google it, basically it's, <laughs> yeah. that's all, I mean, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if Google was around during that time, but anyway, um, you know, it's, um, I have a hard time paying attention, hard time staying organized, you know, like concentrating is a difficult, and that was, n none of those things are my problem. And I'm, again, people who actually need Adderall, need mm. Adderall and it works for them. For me, I was abusing it. Right. And so even, I guess you allude to this in your, in your manuscript that you were treating the symptoms, but the root cause was this sort perfect. of self-worth, yeah. self-love, striving to be perfect. Right. Right. Wow. Wait, okay. Hang on. Sorry. I started to interrupt you. I just realized I haven't introduced you oh. on, on the podcast <laughs> and we're just straight into your darkest truths, which is amazing. And I love that. But... Vitaly Buford, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it only took me nine minutes to get there. Cool. But, um, okay, so you're perfectionist. So where do we go from there? So you, you're hooked on drugs. Is that a fair statement? You're hooked on drugs? Yeah. Uh, for 10 years. And then talk to me about, I, I suppose, the moment everything changed or the moment yeah. after which everything was different. Like... Yeah. What was the reckoning? It was a pretty spiritual moment. So for me, 
I had started running out. Two doctors, two of my four doctors found out about each other and stopped prescribing me. They did not turn me into the police because I guess they would have been in trouble too. So thankfully, <laughs> that was the situation. So my supply was like, was dwindling. And like legal, like laws, statewide laws were more restrictive. So doctors were now being required to check your background. So it just wasn't as easy to get. And I was... I'd hired this executive coach to work with my employees. I ran a marketing department at a very large law firm. And we were riding in a car together and he looks at me out of nowhere and he goes, um, are you critical of your employees? And it really pissed me off. I was like, you don't know me. Like I was taking no personal criticism at this time, like zero self-awareness. Like it came out of nowhere. And I like looked at him and he was like, no, no, no. What I'm trying to say is I think you're critical of your employees because you're critical of yourself. And still I'm pissed because I'm like, you know, I, this is unsolicited. Like you saw me interact with my employees for like, what, five minutes? And now you're this, he's, he was a coach. I'm like, you're this expert. And so we park and get out of my car. It's like sort of awkward. And he looks at me and he says, I see in you what I refuse to see in me. Oof. And that quote changed my life. And I had no idea what the hell it meant at the time. I was like, well, I mean, he, my, you know, it was that, that emoji with the brain exploding. <laughs> really what was going on with me. And I'm like, what? And so the next week, my mom comes to visit me and she, I go to my house and she's drinking at my house and she's relapsed. And I was so angry with her and I'm pointing my finger at her to change and get sober. And then I remember that phrase that he told me, I see in you, but I refuse to see in me. And at that moment, I realized I'm asking my mom to get sober, but I'm not even willing to get sober. Mm. And it was literally like, I remember that moment like it was yesterday. It was five and a half years ago. And I was just like, it's time for me to get sober. And I got down on my knees and prayed that night for the first time for help. My other praise really consisted of basically like, God, please refill my Adderall prescription this one last time. So this prayer was much different. I was like, God, like I need help. Can you help me get sober? And I ended up driving myself to rehab the next week. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you're very efficient once you have some drive or, or an epiphany. Right. You're like, oh, we're, we're taking action. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. And so then you went to rehab. What um, was that like? So I went for two weeks. Did you it have was, to detox? I, I knew, yeah. So I knew that it was what I needed. I had detoxed a few days before because I'd run out of Adderall. And Adderall detox for me, like you're extremely hungry. You're tired because, you know, Adderall keeps you awake. It, keep, it suppresses your appetite. But the depression was the worst because for 10 years, that's how I'd operated my life. I thought that I needed Adderall to be worthy and to be me, to perform, to be a, my profession was my, was my identity. I was really good professionally. And so I thought that I needed that. So when I went to rehab, well, first of all, they were like, so, you know, everyone wants to know when you're in rehab, like what you're in there for. And I was like, Adderall. And they start laughing at me, like you're in here for Adderall. And I was like, um, 360 milligrams a day. <laughs> and they were like, holy shit. <laughs> um, so that gave me some credibility. Like that, like that you were messed up enough to deserve to be there? Right. Well, I mean, like the other patients, not the actual um, healthcare staff. Okay. Like, I needed to be there. Right. Uh, 
but yeah, so I spent two weeks in inpatient treatment and I knew that was what I needed. There was outpatient as an offering, but having lived my life like that for 10 years, I knew I needed to be removed from my environment. Mm -hmm. And then I did intensive outpatient for three months. But the thing is, is that I've removed the Adderall, but I hadn't removed this, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't solved this unworthiness. I hadn't solved this perfectionism issue. And so getting sober, I then developed a really severe eating disorder. Mm. So I switched. It was like addiction whack-a-mole. I removed the Adderall and then, you know, exercise and very restrictive eating filled its place. Mm. Yeah. Uh, It's so common. I've read about that and I've heard about that many times that it's a symptom, right? So you've, you've, you've treated the symptoms, but the root cause remains. Right. growing inside of you it's just manifested in different ways okay and so then uh, i mean i'm just gonna just keep having you tell your story because i have nothing to add and i find this to be supremely interesting so i hope that's okay <laughs> no we'll keep going so for me the eating disorder was i mean it was all consuming like i it was just like my adderall addiction you know for my adderall addiction i was consumed with you know when's my next doctor's appointment and you know i'll do anything to arrange my schedule to make sure i have my adderall and my eating disorder was the same like working out was my god like i ate legitimately like just broccoli and chicken for 2 years i did not have ice cream no mexican food no pizza i was that controlling for 2 years no and Mexican food? I know, right? Like, that sounds good. You know, um, Sorry, I got, I got distracted. No, I understand. Everyone loves tacos. So I was, I, I mean, very controlling. That was my God. And I remember seeing a psychiatrist and he was like, Vitaly, you have an eating disorder. And I was like, no, I don't. Like, I'm not in the hospital, like a Lifetime movie. Like, I'm fine. And he was like, no, like any unhealthy relationship with food is an eating disorder. Hmm. And I was like, oh, and I was, and then I got pissed because I was like, I just spent 10 years addicted to Adderall and now I'm on year two of an eating disorder. Like, so basically 12 years of my life, like, fuck this. So at the time though, did you really, did you really believe that you were healthy and normal and everything was going fine? Or did you deep down kind of have a, have an inkling that there was something not quite right in the way you were living? I knew it was a problem, but I didn't know it was that bad. Like my friends told me, they're like, you're getting really thin. But I was just like, I I saw something different in the mirror. Mm. And, and so for me, like, I mean, I couldn't even fit into a double zero and I felt shame, um, which was just really, it's a lot of body dysmorphia, but Mm. then I just started like, I was like, okay, I don't want this to rule my life. So I just like really started eating like more food, food that made me feel uncomfortable. And what really, really changed my life was I became the guardian of my nephew. And that is what started the true healing journey for me because I didn't, he was five years old at the time. And I didn't, I didn't want to model an eating disorder for him. Mm. Like want to model that behavior. I wanted him to have a different childhood than I had. I wanted to be healthier. I mean, he will obviously has picked up on what there's always dysfunction in a house. Like you can't avoid it, but if I can minimize the dysfunction as much as possible, that's my goal. Mm. And so really like him coming into my life, like I legitimately could not exercise as much as I wanted to, because I was a single parent. I couldn't maintain, like there was something else in my life that was much more important. 
Yeah. And suddenly you had a purpose greater than yourself, I suppose. And then you took on the responsibility to move towards that. Right. Wow. And so this is perhaps a little bit of a tangent, but I'm curious about like the relationships in your life during that 10 or 12 year stretch. Were you, were you dating? Were your family and friends involved in interventions? The relationships were crazy, which are detailed in my memoir. Like they are, (laughs) those would be the questions that I've been getting the most. They're like, so, and everyone's name has changed in the book, but everyone's like, what happened to so-and-so? And I can't believe that happened. But the relationships were extremely dysfunctional because I was codependent. I was also like, again, Adderall was my life, but there was a lot of dysfunction in my romantic relationships. You know, I ended up getting engaged in five months and then it imploded three months after that. And so like called off a wedding and that was definitely driven a lot by Adderall. Mm. Um, And I like quit my job, moved states. Like it was crazy. So sorry, what do you mean it was definitely driven by Adderall? In the sense that you were trying to be perfect or achieve or? Well, with Adderall, there's a lot of like, you're like, for me, I'm an intense human anyway. And Adderall magnified my intensity. Mm. I was manic. Also, the guy that I had been dating before my then fiance, he knew about my Adderall addiction, but thought that everything was better. And the fiance who I jumped ship of that relationship for, he knew that I was taking Adderall. So I felt like I didn't have to hide it. He didn't know I had a terrible problem, but I felt like, okay, I want to at least hide this part of my life to the extreme that I was. Yeah, I feel like it's often easy to judge people superficially of like, oh, she seems healthy. She has a job. Like she gets up and goes to work and feeds herself. Like she seems, she must be okay. Right. And then below the surface, everything is chaos and angst. Right. Yeah. And none of my friends knew. My parents didn't know. I mean, they knew that I had taken Adderall, but no one knew the level of my addiction, that it was like, you know, rehab worthy, that it had been this 10 year addiction, 10 milligrams to 360 milligrams. Like everyone was pretty shocked. And so, so talk to me about that. I mean, you obviously had to tell people that you were going to rehab. Did you discuss your addiction prior to that? Or No, it was... And I finally admitted it was that moment after, you know, my mom, I see in you what I refuse to see in me. And then I got evaluated to see if I, you know, fit the requirements um, to go to rehab. And after I was accepted and my insurance was accepted, I started making calls because for me, I had lived a lie for 10 years. Yeah. And so to finally be able to be honest about it was so freeing. I mean, I was scared, but like just the freedom of being able to be honest about it outweighed everything else. Mm. Who did you call first? Do you remember? Uh, Yeah, I think I probably called, I mean, my parents and maybe the guy that I was dating. um, But then it was like my best friend back home. Yeah. So even the guy that you were dating had no idea it was that severe. Yeah. Wow. I mean, just the amount of pressure and stress to keep those secrets for so long must have been heavy. It was. And so how did you, like, how did you deal with that at the time? I know you were on drugs, but I mean, 
did you have other outlets or other ways of coping or was it merely to just keep dosing? No, it was, I mean, it was Adderall. And then the last four years of my Adderall addiction, I started drinking every single day. Right. So I drank bourbon every single day for four years because Adderall got me so high that I needed something to get me down so I could go to sleep. Mm. Yeah. So then it becomes a cycle, right? And another addiction. Okay. So this is, this is great. And I appreciate your honesty significantly. So you go to rehab, you get out of rehab, you, there's some kind of thing that happens where you have acquired a small human and have to feed them and keep them alive. And that transforms your experience moving forward. Yeah, it does. And, and how long ago was that? So he, I became his guardian, his mom, almost three years ago. Okay, so you got out of rehab like three, just over got, three years. I've been ago. sober five and a half. So oh, okay. I have like two and a half years. Yeah. And so what's happened then? What's the next chapter of what? So since, since you acquired the human. Yeah. So then I became a certified coach within the corporation that I was working at. Um, and the coaching is what I found and I never expected to go to into business for myself, but coaching is what I found like was my calling, helping people live better lives and motivating them. I always loved sports movies growing up. Like remember the Titans and coach Carter and like motivating a group of people and helping them change their lives. Like I love those movies. Mm. And I think for me, I just started doing a lot of inner work like really just so interested in the different layers of us as human beings and the things that we use to cope and numb. And it just really, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm so interested by it all. And I would say that really my book writing process opened me up to how much perfectionism was in every single area of my life mm. and then seeing how it really impacts other people too. So what's, what's an example or two of perfectionism existing in other areas? Yeah. Cause I could so, see it in terms of like looking perfect and dressing perfect or like the step for wife kind of vibe. Yeah. And I would say, so my view of perfectionism and, and definition is different. I view perfectionism Well, symptoms of perfectionism, for example, are procrastination, people pleasing, comparison, control, unrealistic expectations, avoiding conflict, always needing to be busy, stressed. And so an example for me, like in my relationships, I would always avoid conflict because I was afraid of not appearing perfect. Mm. I would never express or show my true self in romantic relationships because I was like, they'll leave me, I'll be abandoned. You know, even at work, I would avoid having difficult conversations with my team because I didn't want to, you can't, as a perfectionist, I can't control the outcome of a difficult conversation. I can control the outcome of one when I'm people pleasing you, when that's where I'm getting my value. And so that was how it was in relationships. But then there was procrastinating, right? Like putting stuff off and off and off and waiting for the quote perfect moment. You know, my body image issues and the, the eating disorder, that was perfectionism, comparing mm. ourselves to other people, perfectionism, codependency probably to some level because we're getting our value from someone else. We need someone else to feel good about ourselves. Perfectionism. 
Yeah. And I guess it kind of relates to fear is when I talk about procrastination in workshops, I tell people that it's fear-based and that it's actually a fear problem, not a perfect problem. And this often stuns people, but my, my take on it is with perfectionism, you're scared of finishing the project because then you have to share it and then you have to be seen and potentially judged as, right. I guess, as you said, not perfect, right? Or, or you have to... Success. We're afraid of being successful. Yeah, like, yeah that's right. If I, finish, if I write this book, I could become a New York Times bestseller and then who the hell am I then? Yeah, and that's scary. Right. So I don't want to f- deal with that. So I'll just right. never finish my book. Right. Yeah. Or just the fact of writing a book, in my experience, is really hard and difficult and uncomfortable and annoying and all kinds of other adjectives. Oh, yeah. And so then it's very easy to procrastinate on doing something challenging. Right. Oh, 100%. Definitely experienced that myself. What was your process for actually doing the hard thing of finishing the book and writing? So I know myself well. I'm a recovering perfectionist, but that does not mean that perfection, I, you know, am immune to it. Mm-hmm. It comes up for me. It just doesn't run my life like it used to. So for me, I was like, okay, I've got two options, obviously. I can try and find a publisher or I can self-publish. And I took self-publishing off the table because I knew that it was my memoir and I would never write it. Like this, the information was too sensitive. The stories were too sensitive. Like I would never write it. Like I needed a legal deadline to be held accountable. <laughs> like I needed a legal deadline to hold my ass accountable. That's the only reason why I went with a publisher. Mm-hmm. And so I pitched my, I hired an agent. They pitched my book idea. A small publisher bought it. I mean, it was all divine timing. I hadn't, I didn't even write a word and a publisher bought my book. And Basically what happened was last year I had signed the contract in February and the publisher calls me and she was like, Batali, if we do not have the initial draft by June 28th, your book will not come out until the end of 2020 or in 2021. And I was like, message received. (laughs) And that's, I wrote my book in five weeks. I feel like I met you just after that because we were... Um, we were sitting, have, we were having pizza that night, and I feel like you told me. Oh, was it before? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe you had told me that you were going to write it in five weeks or something. Because I recall looking at you and thinking, "What are you talking about right now?" <laughs> like, I couldn't. I remember not taking you seriously of being like, "Oh, great, yeah, write your book in five weeks, awesome." But I mean when you have a goal and like, it's possible, I guess that was me projecting my own shit. Like I can write it more in five weeks. We we all, we all take as much time as we're given. Right. I have two years. It'll take me two years to write the damn thing. (laughs) Like I will get it done. Yeah. No, that's all I did. Like I maybe washed my hair three times. I ate all the cookies in sight as like my coping mechanism. And I was not very pleasant, but I wrote the damn thing in five weeks. The initial draft. That's amazing. Thank you. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, a, what a, a wonderful way to deal with procrastination and perfectionism is to just buckle down. And well, take, yourself... massive, take massive and perfect action. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Do you want to unpack that a bit more? Yeah. Mass, massive, imperfect action. Right. 
It's okay. like one of my, my phrases now, like, it's just, that's what we have to do on our dreams, right? Like just take massive, imperfect action. Like writing your, you know, people were like, oh yeah, you'll write a book. I'm sure. And I'm like, no, I'm going to get a publisher. I'm going to get a publisher and that's the route I'm going to go. And then I'm going to write the thing in five weeks. And I did, you know, like it's out a year late. I mean, less than a year later. And I think it's just by, it's that starting, right? Like action leads mm. to confidence, which leads to action. Mm. And we get so paralyzed in that first step. Like I left my corporate career as a single mom with zero savings, zero savings. Cause I just did it. I had one corporate client and I was like, I'm just going to go for this because I feel it in my bones. Like this is the right thing to do. Mm. And it's worked out. It has. I mean, it's been scary as shit, but it's been amazing. It's been amazing. <laughs> so ha- what's your personal kind of rituals or, or systems for dealing with that fear? Um, knowing what you've been through, knowing what you know now, do you have uh, things that you do each day? Like what is your relationship with fear currently? Yeah. So for me, it's by doing it. So when I started my business in 2000, I'm very persistent. Like, to a fault, like on my dreams, on the things I want. Like if you're someone who like, you know, I was talking to your girlfriend, she was like, I bet Jeremy would have you on his podcast. And I like wrote a little to-do list. I'm like, follow up with Jeremy about getting on. I was just going to say to you, Oh, the only reason we're sitting here is because I got an email from you and you're like, Hey, I've written my book. It's coming out. I want to be on your podcast. When can we chat? And I was like, Oh, okay. Hi. You can say no, and then oh, I'll move on. A hundred percent, and I do. Just, just if you're listening right now, please don't email me. I, I love you. I really love you, and uh, I don't need a lot of emails tomorrow. <laughs> but also, like, it's about going, going for it. Like, there are going many people that I've asked, like, can I be on your podcast? And they say no. But when I started my business. I was like, okay, public speaking is one of the ways that I want to get, that I want to impact the world. And I was not a quote public speaker at the time. And so I created my signature speech. I hired a coach to like, I sat in a room for two days, banged out my speech, my 45 minute speech. And then I was like, okay, I got to actually practice this thing. And so I set a goal of like speaking on 24 stages in 2018. And I spoke on 30. And every single one, I did not get paid for one. Every single one I created, I called random companies. Well, not random, but I called companies and I was like, can I come give a free speech to your employees? I would call women's groups. Can I give a speech to your members? I mean, I'm not kidding. I was, because the thing is, is like, I believe that we create, we create our dreams. We create our reality. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times people just think, well, this is going to come to me. You know, like I'm going to write my book and, you know, people are just going to find me and know me. And it's like, no, right. No, (laughs) you know, like, oh, you know, people, I'm going to start my business and people are just going to come ask me to speak at conferences. No, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to be willing to take massive, imperfect action. And I mean, a lot of those places that I called and said, can I give a speech? They were like, who are you? And no, (laughs) but I was like, I was like hung up the phone and went on to the next one. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And one way to, one way to frame that if you're listening is to chase the no's rather than chasing the yeses. So it's, right. it's, for example, setting a goal of I'm going to call 15 companies 
and ask them to give a talk rather than I'm going to get 15 companies to say yes, because then you're actually taking the action. And then the rejection is just like the rejection actually becomes the success because that was the thing that you were striving to obtain. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. The action, like what actions do you need to take to get there? Yes. In the same way that asking a person out on a date is the metric of success. If you did that, then you've succeeded. It's not dependent upon whether they agree to go out with you or not. It's like right. you, you like, did the right. thing. Yeah. It's like writing the book is the success. Yes. Like I totally detached from the outcome of my book. I was like, you know, cause a lot of, I mean, even in the beginning, I was like, I want to be a New York times bestseller. And I mean, hell yes, that would be amazing. But the win is that I showed up for myself and got the damn thing done. Yes. And I feel like from my own experience, that's one of the main ways to finish a book. Like I did as good a job as I possibly could have. I'm proud of this. I think it looks great. I'm really excited and happy to tell people that this is mine. Right. You know? Right. And like, then you win, then you're succeeding. Right. And you know, like, and this, am I going to find out new things about my past or my history? Will other things unfold that aren't included in the book? Yes. But it was true for me when I wrote it. Yes. That's awesome. Because it's, in my experience, I look back at some of the things that I've written online in years past. And I think that's so adorable. Like, (laughs) Oh, that, that quote unquote vulnerability at the time is just so cute to me now. Like you were, you were so scared to share that post. I remember that. And now I look at it and I'm like, I've come so much further than that. And so I feel personally like there is an invitation to judge that previous version of myself. And that is not helpful. That is not a good decision. Right. Well, and sorry, I'm like so excited. Um, What kept me going was Glennon Doyle. So, (laughs) you know, like Glennon Doyle wrote Love Warrior where she saves her marriage. Mm-hmm. And then it's on Oprah's book list. She hasn't like, and it's about to, you know, be this big deal. And she had to call Oprah and say, um, my marriage actually didn't work out. And I'm in love with Abby. Abby Wambach, who is yeah, a professional like, soccer player. And I'm like, if Glennon Doyle, I was like, she can do whatever she wants. I was like, I can write my book and I can do whatever the hell. I, I mean, like I, that courage and bravery was just so amazing to me and so beautiful mm-hmm. that it was like, giving yourself permission to change, giving yourself permission to be, you know, like that instead of waiting for the perfect moment to do something or, you know, like just doing it. Just doing it. Fuck it. Yeah. And I recall listening to an interview with her where she was saying that the publisher and her agent and others were telling her to lie, right. Of like, just get through the press junket. Don't talk about that. Your marriage has failed. Because the whole premise of your book in this launch is talking about fighting for love. And she had the inner fortitude to listen to that inner whisper saying, no, I'm just going to be honest and be myself and trust that this is all going to work out. Yeah. yeah. Right. And we just, you know, because we're going to find out more things about our childhood as we grow and different Mm. traumas as we grow and things will be revealed to us when our subconscious or conscious feels that we're ready. And so for me, part of me was like, well, I've got to know every piece of the puzzle of my life before I write my memoir. Hmm. And then I was like, no, I don't. Like, <laughs> no, I don't. A, that may never happen. And B, like, this is what 
what's true for me right now. Mm. And see, whose voice is that saying that I have to do that? And is and D, is that even true? <laughs> right. You know? Right. So you've written a memoir. How, yeah. And it comes out probably right when the podcast will come out, actually. The end of March. Yeah. And... What are you up to now? Like, what's the next challenge that you're leaning into, or what are you excited about? Yeah, uh, for me, I'm really like no one is owning the perfectionism space. And my startup business, I was so scared of like being known as the imperfectionist, but that's the space I'm owning. Is really helping people heal their perfectionism and their fear, so they can step into their wildest dreams and take massive, imperfect action on their life. And so what is that? I coach people. So I have programs hmm. um, that I coach people on how to heal their perfectionism, heal the, like heal and disrupt those perfectionism patterns and start taking massive action in their lives. So stop avoiding that difficult conversation. Stop procrastinating. Stop hmm. comparing. Stop people pleasing. How do you do that? Here are the tools. I've done it myself. And watch your life open up. I love that. Yeah. What does it mean to you to be an imperfectionist? It means loving yourself exactly where you are. The end. The end. <laughs> it's so simple, cause it's, but it's so true, right? Right. And so what are, um, if somebody's listening right now thinking, yeah, self-love, that sounds great. I like that idea. Because it's it's such a cliche kind of buzzword in the personal development space, right? You just have to love yourself and life will be great. And it's like, yeah, okay, but I've spent my whole life not doing that. So where do you suggest that people begin that process? I think the first step is just becoming a curious observer of yourself and your thoughts and your reactions. So just curious, like when you can get really curious about yourself. Like, that's interesting. I feel really jealous, (laughs) you know, and instead of hating yourself for that jealousy, like we took as perfectionists, we do, right? Like we feel jealous. And then we're like, I'm such an asshole. I should be super excited that my friend Sally got this promotion, but I'm jealous. When you become a curious observer, you take out the judgment, you take away the shame and you're just like, huh, I'm jealous. What does that mean? Maybe that means I need to step it up in my career. Maybe jealousy is just a freaking human emotion and I'm just going to let it pass because that's fine. It doesn't actually make me good or bad. Everyone feels it at some point and I'm just going to move on. You know? So just like when you can curiously observe yourself instead of being an asshole to yourself, like things start opening up. You know, like, oh, I just reacted. Like I just snapped at my son. What's going on with me? Like, oh, I just said that real, I've been beating myself up lately. What does that mean? What is that an indication of? What is that a signal of? Like, what is the deeper issue? So when you can just curiously observe yourself, like that's when things start opening up. And I would say that's the first step. Mm -hmm. And so you're starting to ask gentle questions of yourself and being aware of what's going on. Yep. And then what do you do with that awareness? Like, so for example, if you recognize like I'm being so hard on myself for being jealous right now, then, then what do you, what do you do with that? 
Well, then you choose better. So <laughs> choose better. So you said well, choose better thoughts. So yeah. you go curious observation, mm-hmm. then becoming this conscious curator of your thoughts, right? Like then you have to say, okay, I have an option. I can continue to be an asshole to myself or I can choose better. <laughs> Truly. And I mean, I still do this stuff and I'm like, you know, nearly six years into like deep yeah. quote improvement work, whatever, like self actualization, self mastery. But like, I still, I still have to like make a choice, a better choice. I can choose a better thought and it's a job every single day. Healing is an everyday deal. Mm. And just to be transparent and clarify, like I'm smiling and giggling because I really love your passion right now. Not because <laughs> I'm judging your statements as silly. <laughs> I'm just like, I feel like I'm getting a motivational talk to myself right now. I'm like, Oh Okay, just like a, like a fire hose of encouragement. Right. I get really, really excited. Well, you know, it's, again, like we have a choice. We can continue down the same road or we can choose better. So, yeah, it's by mm. like curious observation and then becoming this con- conscious curator. So it's like now I feel, I feel jealousy. I can either continue to beat myself up for this jealousy or I can choose a better thought. I can look in the mirror and beat myself up for the way I look, or I can say, you know what? I'm willing to, I'm learning to love my body. Mm-hmm. And just practice that acceptance. Yeah. And it's all the time. As you know, it's not a final destination. Like we continue to evolve and we continue to heal and layers and all that stuff. I love it. I actually, just as a note to the listener, uh, in the Courtney McNabb episode, I tell the taco story, which I was about to just mention here. And then I realized that I've already told the story on the podcast. So <laughs> basically I was in line for tacos and I got super fucking sad and I started doing exactly what you described. And then I caught myself. I was like, I'll just be sad. And like maybe two seconds went by and it was fine. I was like, Oh, right. that was easy. Right. So choosing better. So being being curious and then choosing better. And I, I anticipate that there's some kind of third step in which you are gentle and compassionate with yourself as you're learning to do this new, uncomfortable, hard thing better and better and better. I would say the steps really are awareness, which is the curious observation, mindset, which is choosing better. Mm-hmm. And then the third step's action. Yeah. And it's that massive, imperfect action. Mm-hmm. And it just is a cycle, right? It's awareness, mindset, action, awareness, mindset, action. Yeah. And part of the action might be to be gentle. Right. The action might be, uh, be kind to yourself and accept that it's going to take some time to right the ship or whip the ship around in a U-turn. Like you got a lot of momentum living your life and behaving in certain ways and thinking certain thoughts and running these various subconscious programs. And part of the action is just realizing that this is a lifelong thing that you're committing to. And right. it might take a minute. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And it just, from my own experience, just because I have that insight of like, Oh, I get it now. I understand what life is about. I'll just start living that way. It's like my experience uh, it's it's not that easy. Yeah, you got to practice it. Yeah, you got to practice it. 
what, uh, what tips do you have for practicing? Or like, what do you, what's the self-talk that you, that you have in your brain when you're trying to do or be or become something different or better? You know, I think part of it is, you know, declaring it, right? So it was like when I was writing my book, I just, I talked about the book because I was like, now I'm accountable. Like, I'm going to write a book. I am a writer. I am an author, you know, like. Well, you told I, me. Right. And that was before <laughs> I'd even written it. I was, that what? was in 2000, you and I met in 2018. I think I'd actually just gotten, the publisher had just told me they were interested maybe. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think identifying as that, for me, it's having my own coach who I'm accountable to because, again, I know how I operate and having a level of, of accountability in which I'm financially investing and, like, I'm investing my time and resources. Like, that is accountability for me. And then, you know, just sitting down and setting your intentions. What are those things that you want to achieve and what's it going to take to get there? And creating excitement. I think another thing, too, is I am statements are really, really powerful for creating accountability and action. So for me, every morning after I do my gratitude journaling, I'm like, I am a New York Times bestselling author. I am a highly sought after public speaker all over the world. I am working with Reese Witherspoon on the movie of my book. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Is that who you've cast to play yourself? I just want her to produce it because you know she does. She takes you know women's books and then turns them into movies. So I'm like, it's happening. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I love that. It's it's scripting, right? And right. sort of identifying the life you want to live before you've actually seen evidence that it exists. Right, and just allowing yourself to dream big. We're mm. afraid of what other people will think and what judgments will happen or i don't want to say this out loud because what if it doesn't happen well what if it does mm. what if it freaking does like the old me would have been like i am not saying anything about reese witherspoon because one of jeremy's listeners is going to be like who the hell does she think she is yeah but you know what what the hell am i think that and the same goes for all your listeners dream big big as fuck <laughs> I was, I just adore your spirit right now. Just to say, I was also going to add, what if one of my listeners is like, oh, Reese Witherspoon's my cousin. Right. Right. She's great. I think she'd, and she used to have a secret Adderall addiction. Right. <laughs> I think she'd love this project. But you know, like, you just have to say, like, that's what I, I mean, I wrote before I got my publishing contract. Literally every day I was like, I am going to, like, I'm going, like, I'm going to get a publishing contract for my book. I'm going to get a pub, you know, I have a publishing mm. contract and I wrote it and wrote it and wrote it. I love it. Well, like one, one way that I've looked at that in the past is that there's really only two beliefs that you need to cultivate in life. One is knowing where you want to go. And the second is knowing that you'll get there. Right. And if you know where you want to go and you've identified that and you know that you're going to arrive there at some stage, then everything else becomes irrelevant. Like the how becomes irrelevant. The how just becomes a grand adventure to savor and enjoy because you know where you're going and you know that you'll get there. And so the rest of it is just like, yeah, this is fun. Oh, I got 73 rejections today. Oh, well, I know that I'm going to get where I'm going. Right. It doesn't matter. Right. 
So fuck it. Well, when you do end up meeting Reese Witherspoon, maybe just mention that I've got a podcast. I'd love to chat, you know? I'll totally set that up for you. (laughs) Uh, Okay, what else do we need to discuss that we haven't hit on? Is there anything that that you've... is there any fire still burning in your, in your stomach that you got to throw my way? Um, I think for me right now, like what is really like, I guess the, the only, the fire that's left in me right now is I'm in this space of really embracing uncertainty because we're in a time of uncertainty, but embracing it in a way where when things are uncertain, anything is possible. Like our businesses can open up and change in ways that we never thought possible, you know, like our, it just, um, and it just goes along this, the same pace with our dreams. You know, it's like the Reese Witherspoon thing. Like I don't, that could happen in six months. It could happen in six years. Or in six years, you look back and you're like, actually, no, she wasn't the right fit. I'm so glad I didn't meet her. Maybe because Maybe it's gone this way. Maybe in my book, I don't know. Because I just met Julia Roberts at Starbucks, and <laughs> <laughs> her and Reese don't get along. And so I'm so glad that I don't know Reese Witherspoon. I'm still hanging on to my dream, Jeremy. But I, for me, <laughs> sorry, I, I like went back and forth. But I guess for me, just like I want people to know that the dreams they have are theirs, and they can make them happen. Mm-hmm. Like I'm so. If I wrote a book. It is available to every single person listening on your podcast. Yeah. And they can get it done in five weeks. It's true. Or less. Yeah, just the idea of dreaming big is, it's almost uh, like in our society or culture, I feel like it's encouraged, but not really. It's kind of like, yeah, shoot for the stars and you'll end up as the moon or whatever. But then it's also, I feel like a lot of the advice is centered around be realistic, you know? Yeah. Dream as big as you want, but make sure you have health insurance <laughs> and savings. Yeah. Maybe it's not the right time to dream that big. Right. Maybe work another couple years and then you could dream big right. as if that's a thing. And it's like, no, like there's never the perfect time. There's now. And I think a, a second aspect of that is admitting to yourself what you truly want and clarifying the life that really does excite you and owning it. Like if you want Reese Witherspoon on your book, like you have to own that shit because if not, you're hiding and you're scared and you're playing small and that serves nobody. And that does not increase the chances of your dreams coming true. Totally. I can't wait for Reese Witherspoon's cousin to listen to your podcast. I can't wait to get an email and be like, oh my God, that really just happened. How, <laughs> how weird. And I'm going uh, to get one from Julia Roberts' publicist saying, uh, I listen to your podcast and I just want to clarify, Julia Roberts and Reese Witherspoon are not enemies. They get along just <laughs> fine. Please issue a retraction next episode. Right. What a good problem to have. Um, okay so i know you've got the book i'll include a link to that in the show notes where else can people find you are you on the instagram and the internet i am i'm super active on instagram it's vitali buford and yeah i've got a website it's vitali buford.com but instagram is definitely where it's at okay and i'll put links to that stuff in the show notes thank you for 
coming on the podcast for being so open and honest and brave in owning your story and your past. I find these examples to be really inspiring um, as an invitation for me to, to do more of the same, uh, yeah. owning my own bravery. And so thank you for your courage in inviting mine forward. And I'm sure many people listening to this right now. So keep doing your thing. And, uh, and I look forward to reading your book. Awesome. Thanks, Jeremy. You're welcome. Ooh, wow. I, just, I need to go put some lotion on my, my skin is all burnt off from your fiery. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, got a little fiery at the end there, right? Wasn't that good? I feel excited. I kind of want to pick a fight with my fears right now. It's got me all riled up. Anyway, that was Vitaly Buford. You can find her online and on Instagram. You can check out her book as well. I've included links to those in the show notes. Thank you for being such an awesome specimen of a human being. And one, of course, that has great taste in podcasts. Just saying. You're a gem. I adore you. Thank you so much for the reviews, for sharing this on Instagram and with your friends and family. It helps spread the word, make a positive impact in the world. That's what this is all about. I adore you. I thank you. And I hope you get outside today. Take a deep breath while staring at a cloud and reminding yourself that you're okay. You're doing good, and I'm proud of you. <laughs>